So tonight we are continuing our series, Eating with the Lord. And of course, uh, this chapter, this story in Luke, which uh, David already talked about this morning in the children's talk, is, is, a, is a story that is uh, very appropriate uh, for this week after Easter. And, and if you were here this morning, uh, in the morning service, Clay uh, preached on John 20. And, and one of the things that Clay was telling us, he was sharing about how he really cannot handle if a story isn't finished, right? He has to keep reading to the end of a book. He has to keep watching until the end of a movie and so on and so forth. So, and he was showing us quite beautifully how in that story in John 20, how we see the story of Scripture being resolved in the story of Jesus. And he showed us all these beautiful links between the Garden of Eden and then the people um, meeting Jesus at the first day of the week. And he showed us really how the story of Scripture is resolved in the person of Jesus, his death, resurrection, and ascension. And in a way that fits quite nicely with part of what I wanted to share tonight as well. Because it seems to me that one of Luke's main claims in this story that we've just listened to is that the story of Scripture is resolved in Jesus. And Luke does this in a slightly different way than John. John gives us all these beautiful allusions to the garden stories in John 20. Luke is a bit more explicit here and he tells us this story of how Jesus comes alongside these two people on the road to Emmaus. One of them is named, one of them is named Cleopas. The other one, we don't know the name. Perhaps tonight you can imagine it's you, but we don't know who the other one is. Perhaps his wife. And, and Jesus meets them. He walks alongside them on the road. And I love how Jesus just pretends like, like he is unaware of the things that have happened only a few days before then to him. And, and so he, he asks them, you know, what, what is the deal? What happens? And they tell him, you know, don't you know about Jesus, this, this prophet who was mighty in word and in deed? And don't you know what has happened to him? Are you really the only one who doesn't know all of this? And it is at that point that Luke makes it a, this explicit claim where, oh, I have the clicker as well, so I can do this as well. Where Jesus says to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And perhaps you think that Jesus is, is a little bit harsh at this point. How foolish you are. But if you've been reading the Gospel of Luke so far, you will know that this is definitely not the first time that Jesus has been telling about his forthcoming death and resurrection from the dead to his disciples. In fact, this is probably the fifth time you've had three predictions by Jesus about his passion and his resurrection. In Luke 9, we find two of them when Jesus is still in Galilee. And then in Luke 18, when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he again explicitly tells his disciples that this is what is going to happen to him. And then earlier in the chapter, we have... The angel sitting, waiting at the garden, and the women, they come, and the angels tell them, you know, didn't he tell you this when he was in Galilee? Jesus had to suffer, and he rose, had to rise. 
And so perhaps we might think that Jesus is a bit harsh on them, but at the same time, you know, shouldn't they have known this? Shouldn't they have just read their scriptures and be able to figure out that the Messiah has to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Well, I guess that one of the points that Luke is trying to make here is that actually it wasn't so obvious at all. I mean, I don't know, we, we are sitting here tonight, of course, with, with the people, a lot of people here who, who know the scriptures quite well. And so when Luke talks about the scriptures here, he doesn't talk about the New Testament, right? Because he was writing the New Testament. Um, or he was writing a book that later became part of the New Testament. So, so he was talking about the Jewish scriptures, which more or less is what we have as our Old Testament. So perhaps tonight, with all this shared knowledge in the room, can you tell me where in the Old Testament do we find that the Messiah has to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? So Isaiah 53 is one, yeah. Um, somewhere else? So yeah, oh yeah, yeah, you said Isaiah 53, Ian, Ian as well at the same time. But, but in Isaiah 53, yes, we read about a suffering servant, right? But the servant isn't called the Messiah there in Isaiah 53, is he? So it's a figure who suffers, yes. It's a figure who's vindicated, who comes back to life, perhaps. How you read Isaiah 53. But what about a Messiah who has to suffer? Do you find that anywhere in the scriptures? I mean, just mention any psalm, perhaps, or where, where can we... Where do we read about someone, an anointed figure who's, who's suffering, who's then raised into glory? Good. We're a little bit confused here, and that is good because we're now beginning to experience a little bit, perhaps, of what the disciples in the story of Luke experienced when Jesus was making these claims. Yes, they knew their scriptures, and perhaps they knew the passage from Isaiah 53, but... They, didn't, they couldn't probably find one text in those scriptures where it said that the Messiah would have to suffer these things and, to, and then enter into his glory. Now, if you, if you dig a little further in the Jewish scriptures, you will find other places where you read about suffering figures. For example, in Psalm 22, we hear about David, you know, the anointed king, the Messiah, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later in that psalm, David is vindicated, and the psalm ends with all nations praising the God of Israel. Okay. Uh, perhaps you could think of Psalm 110, where we, we have this messianic figure sitting at the right hand of God, exalted into glory. Um, all of that to say, Luke isn't just saying here, or Jesus isn't saying here, you know, look up in your Bibles, this one verse will tell you exactly what is going to happen. No, rather, Luke is claiming that the story of Scripture, yes, it is finding its fulfillment in Jesus, but it may not be as obvious to the disciples. I mean, that is clear in the whole Gospel of Luke. To us, it may be obvious, because we know Jesus. We see Jesus. We know that Jesus suffered, died, was raised into glory. So, so we go back to the Old Testament, and we read all these passages from the Old Testament, and and we can suddenly fit them together to see Jesus. It is kind of like 
this puzzle. You know, there are all these pieces in the scriptures that together make for this perfect puzzle. And, and that, that puzzle perhaps represents the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. And all the pieces are there in the scriptures, but how to piece them together is very obvious to us because we know the end product. We see Jesus. So we can go back to the Old Testament, read all these passages and put them together to make them a complete puzzle. But if it really was this obvious, you know, why are there so many Jews today that read the scriptures, the Old Testament, perhaps more than we do, and still cannot see Jesus? Part of the point that Luke is making in this passage is that the story of scripture is resolved in Jesus, but you need Jesus to see it. You need Jesus to come walk alongside you and show you, this is who I am. This is how it all fits together. And perhaps another illustration is, you know, this. What do you see in this? Anyone? <laughs> a rabbit or a duck? Yes. <laughs> well, first, I could only see a duck in this until someone told me there's actually a rabbit in here as well. And, and once you see it, you cannot unsee it. But before you see it, you cannot see it unless someone tells you. I had to be told by someone there was actually a rabbit in this. Otherwise, I would have never known. <laughs> and I think this is perhaps a good illustration of, of what is going on in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus claims that the story of Scripture is resolved in him as well. You need Jesus to be able to see, to see it without him. The pieces of the puzzle just remain scattered over the board. And so sort of in line with what Clay was saying this morning, yes, the story of Scripture finds its fulfillment in Luke, and Jesus says it does. But we need Jesus to see how it all fits together. But tonight, I don't want to just dwell on that claim. And we, we could do a whole Bible study tonight, just looking at all those passages I mentioned. And there are other Psalms, there are other bits of the puzzle that we, we could try to piece together tonight. But I don't want to just dwell on that, because tonight, I wanted to dwell for a bit on the fact that we are looking at the story of a journey. And even though this was a journey that happened a long time ago, I believe that this journey, oh, is there a text? That although the story is resolved, our journey continues. And I believe that this story about this journey of these two people on the road to Emmaus can speak into our lives tonight as well. And so just a few thoughts that I wanted to share with you along those lines. The first one is that in this story we see Jesus meeting the disciples in their confusion. And, and you know, what I, what I find so beautiful is that Jesus has been explaining to them before and over and over again that this is what had to happen. And this is, you know, this is Easter day. The evening after Jesus' resurrection, there were so many things that he could have done. But what he chose to do is to engage in a long walk with two people that were still confused. Jesus pursued them. He came alongside them. He found them in their confusion. He showed his great love, kindness, and patience 
by doing that. And perhaps we're sitting here tonight and, and we can think back of our faith journey. You know, some of us were born and raised in Christian families, and so perhaps there's less of a story to be told of how we came to believe in Jesus. But I think there are some in the room tonight that could definitely testify of how it took many, many years for you to figure out how the pieces of the puzzle fitted together. Isn't it great that Jesus comes to meet us in our confusion, that he doesn't give up on us, that even if it takes 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, he will be there. He wants to show us how it all fits together. But perhaps you're here tonight and you know about Jesus and you know that this is how the puzzle fits together. But at the same time, there are other bits in your life at the moment that confuse you. Questions about faith, questions about the Bible. Perhaps you feel like you're holding on tight to that puzzle, but there are pieces that are just falling off. And I just want to encourage you tonight that in this story, we see the heart of God in Jesus. That He, even if we walk away from Him, He will come alongside us again. And He wants to draw us to Him again. He wants to explain to us again how it all fits together. Jesus meets us in our confusion. And then there's another bit of this story that I really like. Because when Jesus then finally comes close to Emmaus, he pretends, the story says, that he wants to walk on. But the people, Cleopas and the other one, they invite Jesus in. And what I love about this is that I think it shows us that Jesus himself desires our fellowship. You know, that phrase that Jesus pretends to walk along implies that he actually wants to stay. He wants to have fellowship with these people. And I think there is something that is ingrained in, in all of us as humans, that we desire to have fellowship with other humans. At a very basic level, whether we're introverts or extroverts, none of us can exist without friendships. None of us can exist without fellowship with others. And uh, that made me think, uh, so Tini and I, sometimes we, we watch a TV show when we have time. And, and one, one of the shows that we've been watching recently, I don't know if any of you see a few nodding heads, have, have come across it. It's called Race Across the World. <laughs> Um, it's a really fun show to watch. It's, so you have teams, couples, that are racing against each other. They have a beginning point and an end point. They get a very low budget. They're not allowed to use a plane. They, so they usually travel by bus or hitchhike. And they need to, of course, outrun each other to get from point A to B. But point A to B are quite far apart. So in the season that we watched, they had to travel from Mexico to the most southern part of Argentina. And, and you think this race is all about, you know, the money that the winning team gets in the end. But actually, when you, when you watch one episode, it's suddenly, or it soon will become very clear that this is not at all about racing or money. This whole show is about relationships. It's all about these couples traveling together and the dynamic of them traveling together, what happens as they journey together. 
And what really struck me about this couple was, you know, they they're sort of come from a rich family, never had to work, both gave up on their studies, and their, their father sort of sent them on this, go and, and do something with your life, go and race across the world. And, and so they, they learned some hard lessons along the way. But one of the things that really struck me with them, you know, they, they travel through the Andes Mountains, they travel through the rainforest, the deserts, along the shores of the Pacific, and you see all this beautiful scenery. And then in the last episode, when they need to catch a bus to the final destination, they have to wait for about eight hours until the bus comes. And there's this scene where this one lady, very unpretentious, walks up to them. She's in the bus station and says, okay, if you have to wait for eight hours, do you want to come and have meal, a meal at our house? And they're like, yeah, well, didn't expect that, but let's go. So they, they go to that house. In, this quite sketchy neighborhood and this house is quite run down and you see sort of the food on the table and it doesn't look that great. But they have the best time together. And afterwards they ask them, you know, you've done this whole trip, you've seen all these magnificent cities and landscapes. What was the highlight of your trip? Guess what they said? Just that meal with those people. And I think there's something so deeply ingrained in us that we have this desire for fellowship. And we see this in this story with Jesus as well. You know, we can, we can organize great and beautiful events for Jesus. We can organize gospel events where we get the best speakers, most engaging speakers, the best worship bands, and put all money and energy in whatever we want to do and do for Jesus. But at the end of the day, the thing he desires most is just to sit down at the table with us and a fellowship with us. What he desires most is for us to enjoy being in his presence. And then as we sit at the table with Jesus, and here's where we come to the end of this story, we see that he feeds us with all that we need. At the end of this story, we read when he was at the table with them. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. You know, Jesus suddenly turns from the guests into the host here, and and we don't exactly know how they recognize Jesus, where it was a supernatural revelation, or perhaps in the breaking of the bread, they saw the wounds in his hands and realized who he was. But there's one thing here in this story that if I say it again, just tell me which story of the Bible comes to your mind. Okay. Jesus took bread. He gave thanks and broke it. And then he began to give it. So he took and he gave. And then their eyes were opened. Where in the Bible have we heard combination? Sorry. Giving, taking, eyes being opened. Well, Last Supper, he, there, there are, he takes the bread at the Last Supper. But go back to the beginning of Scripture. 
Genesis. Yes. It's when Adam, when Eve, the woman, she, she takes from the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, and she gives it to Adam. And then their eyes are open. They realize they're naked and they run away ashamed and afraid of God. And in this story, we see a reversal of that. Okay, so here we have the Son of God himself. And he takes, and indeed, here is where we get the Last Supper. He takes from his bread, which two chapters earlier we've learned that represents his body. He takes from his bread, his life-giving body, and he gives it to this couple, perhaps. That's why I like this picture. You see a man and a woman. He gives it to this couple. And then their eyes are open, but not open in a negative way where they become aware of their nakedness and run away ashamed of God. No, their eyes are open so that they see Jesus. And tonight as we come to eat in the presence of the Lord, I hope that this story will help us celebrate communion, perhaps with open eyes. That whether we have come here tonight with you know, either in confusion, not quite sure how all the pieces fit together. You know, Jesus comes alongside you. He is here tonight. And He wants to show Himself to you. He desires, He has this deep desire for fellowship with you. And so that's why He instituted this table. A place where He gives us His life-giving body and blood. To sustain us on the journey. To sustain us on our journey.